Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you in the peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always and when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshing, refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesius, whose father I have become my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. As I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he, may, that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might be, um, be compulsive, compulsion, not, um, but of your accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he was wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of our owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest's room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Aphius, my fellow um, prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, um, Aratagris, Demas, and Luke, and my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit. This is God's word. All right. Thank you, Luke. At this point, we're going to have uh, Julia come on up, and she's going to lead us in the Lord's Prayer, as we've been doing for several months now. Uh, So, yeah. Julia, come on up, and let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, you are the one true God. You reign above heaven and earth, and yet love us so well. When we think of you, of who you are, we can't grasp your presence, love, and wisdom. We want to praise and worship you with our lives and bring you glory. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, change our lives our church, and our community from the inside out. There is so much despair and pain around us, and it is difficult not to get swept up in the worldly ways of dealing with all of it. Help us to pray consistently and faithfully. We want you to be the priority and see your kingdom grow and blossom around us. 
We want to be your hands and feet on the ground. Give us your eyes for the people around us. Give us your wisdom and love to act in your name. Lord, we want to pray for Tucson, that you, Holy Spirit, lighten up the darkness. We pray for this country and its leaders, for wisdom and your guidance. And we pray for this world, Lord. Hear our cries. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus, you know our worries. You know that our hearts constantly return to doubts. You know that just like the Israelites, we wander and try to take control. We want to lay down our worries and pray for your provision. We trust that you know what we need before we do. Help us to come to you when we feel weary and worn out. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You know our sins better than anyone. Lord, forgive us as we continue to be tempted and turn to the world. Help us to continually forgive those around us. We want to learn to love with our, your love and shine your light into this world. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus, please protect our hearts in this world. Point us back to you and hold on to us when we can't seem to see your path. There are evils and temptations at every corner, and they are veiled so well. Protect us from the lies of the enemy, Jesus. Let us hear your voice more clearly than anything else. We need your salvation, and we want to choose to follow you every day. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks, Julia. I, uh, I want to take a, just a moment to say how much I appreciate everybody who's, uh, who's come up to do the Lord's Prayer that I've asked. I usually get uh, three types of responses whenever I ask if someone wants to do the Lord's Prayer. I'll usually get yes or no or no, but I probably should. And, uh, and I've got, I get a lot of the third one. That's really, that's really cool. People are like, I have no interest in doing it whatsoever, but I'm going to do it because I feel like it'd be good. And, uh, and so, yeah, for all of those people who know who they are, thanks a bunch. And uh, if you haven't done it yet, just wait. I ask a lot of people. So, all right, let's get started. So, last week... Um, we started with the story of Cain and Abel. We, we kind of connected that into this here. And so for those who don't know, and I'm sure many of you guys do, but bear with me, Cain and Abel was a story of two brothers, actually the two first brothers that we see in Scripture. They're sons of literally the two first humans ever created. And their story with each other casts this like horrible, dark shadow over the history of humanity because they kill each other. Well, more specifically, Cain kills his brother. But it's a story of jealousy and anger and wrath and violence. And after Cain kills his brother, God is speaking to him and he's like, Cain, where, where's Abel? And Cain's response is again like this, this phrase that would have all of this deep foreshadowing in the history of how humans interact with each other. His words were, am I my brother's keeper? Like, is that my responsibility to know where he is? Knowing that he knew exactly where he was, he had murdered him. But this spirit of, 
what, what, am I, what, what do you want from me, God? You want me to know where this person is? You want me to consider and, and take all of these responsibilities for other people around me? That's kind of this awkward foreshadowing that this story had. And we see it unfold throughout the entire book of the Old Testament. But I mean, honestly, we, we see it today. We see that same kind of spirit all throughout human history and in the news. Last week, we kind of connected to how all of this corruption of human history led us to the point of the life and the ministry and the message of Jesus, who lived in a way where he was not moved by interpersonal conflicts and dispute. He was not affected by large systemic uh, prejudices or biases against people based on their ethnicity or their class or their status. But he saw people as human beings, even fallen human beings, but he saw them as worthy of dignity. And so we can see that the life of Jesus and more specifically the death of Jesus was actually turning this phrase of Cain on its head, instead of, am I my brother's keeper? Now all of us who have inherited life from Jesus have this new motto, which is, I am my brother's and my sister's keeper. And so now we want to explore what that looks like. Last week was me making my grand case for yes, we are each other's brothers and sisters, keepers. Now, how, now what does that mean? Now, this week, I kind of want to get into, like, what does that look like step by step? And our uh, groundwork for exploring that is Philemon, this weird, one-shot, kind of awkward book in the New Testament that there are still scholars who are like, why is this here? It's not... Paul talking about the riches of the atonement. It's like a personal letter to some dude. Like, hey, uh, could you do me a favor? Seems a little out of place. And so I'll, I'll do a quick review as I jump through Philemon. Uh, so for those of you guys who have been here the past couple weeks, this should be quick. Um, and those who haven't, hopefully this is helpful. Uh, Philemon is a letter written by Paul. Paul's one of the, the head honchos of the New Testament. He's, a, he's an apostle, which means he has a great deal of spiritual authority in this early time of the church. Um, he's a teacher, and he's, uh, he's very, very involved in the early ministries that took place right after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, Paul is writing this letter. It's one chapter, very brief. What Luke read earlier was the entire thing. And he's reading it, and uh, he's writing it to this guy named Philemon. Philemon is a fairly wealthy dude, lives in Colossae, which is like modern day Turkey. And uh, we know that he's fairly wealthy because he's most likely the guy where when, when the church, the local church meets, they probably meet at his house. So Philemon uh, owned a slave by the name of Onesimus. Now, slave has a ton of cultural uh, kind of, you know, alarms that go off for us as Americans. So I want to really quickly distinguish, at this point in history, slavery wasn't quite race-based 
as much as it was status. And I would say it's heavily a debt thing. Usually if you had a lot of debt, oftentimes you would sell yourself into slavery and you would be cared for by a master for a few years. You'd work for him and then a good master would let you go. A bad master, there's a lot of options, usually not great ones. So Philemon owned Onesimus as a slave. They had some conflict. We're not really sure what happened. And Onesimus ran away, which marks Onesimus as in one of the worst scenarios you could find yourself in in this point in history. Because to be a slave was to be property and not a citizen and not a person. To be a runaway slave meant that you were property. You were the lawnmower that jumped over the fence. Like, worst place you could be. Runaway slaves could be branded with hot iron. They could be tortured and beaten. They could even, in some cases, be killed. So Paul met Onesimus at some point after he ran away, and Onesimus became a Christian. And so now Paul, who's, who knows Philemon as a good friend, and now knows Onesimus as this, like, spiritual son is kind of in this place of, okay, these guys have a, have a situation. I want to help resolve this. And so Paul says, Onesimus, I need you to go back to your master. You ran away. You guys had a social contract in place. You need to go back there and resubmit yourself to him. But this letter is not to Onesimus. This letter is to the master. And what he says to him is, Philemon, listen. You were not, I'm sending Onesimus back to you because that's the good and just thing to do. But I'm asking you as a friend that when you receive him back, you not receive him like a slave, not like the runaway lawnmower that we're conditioned to think he is. But I want you to receive him as a brother, not even as a person, but as a brother, someone you share a household with. This was a big thing to say. And so that's kind of the brief story of what's happening in this. And history kind of gives us an idea that Philemon did receive Onesimus with love. He actually freed him, even though he hadn't paid off his debt yet. Onesimus returns to Paul, served him in his ministry for a while, and, and some church traditions actually say Onesimus was later appointed a bishop which is a very high place in church polity, which is an incredible thing to think that, that in the kingdom of God, a man who was literally one's property was able to oversee a number of Christians and seek out their well-being. And so what we're going to kind of look at today is we're going to look to Paul's example here. And we're going to say, how does Paul give us a blueprint for what it looks like to treat our brothers and our sisters as if we are their keepers? If we truly are called to love and care for and consider the people around us, the people that God has given to us in our small circles, what does that look like? And I will add before we jump into the points it's worth saying that these are uh, goals that we should seek and long for within mutually trusted relationships. Um, 
you know, Zach here could, could after this sermon, shoot out an, uh, an Instagram message to LeBron James and say, hey, man, I just want you to know, I, I want to know you really deeply as a friend, and I want to care for you, and I want to reflect the love of Jesus to you, uh, LeBron James of the Los Angeles Lakers. And that probably won't go anywhere. So, uh, I don't know. I've seen your follower count, dude. It's not that impressive. <laughs> so, hey, I'm just being honest. Tough love. That's point three. So, um, <laughs> so anyways, let's, let's get started. Let's go into our points here. Here's our first one. Um, to know our brothers and our sisters. To know our brothers and sisters. What Paul makes very clear in this letter is that his awareness of these two men is not limited to the circumstances that they find themselves in. He doesn't know them as just uh, one guy is the wealthy master and the other guy is the poor slave. He knows them, like he knows who they are. He's had the opportunity to connect with them in a relationship and he knows things about them. And that's really valuable in a relationship. Not just to be able to list off little facts about a person, but to be able to understand them in a way where it's like, you know their motivations for things. You know their story and background in ways that allows you to love them because you know them in a richer and more impactful way. Ray sent me this uh, super depressing study about a week ago, uh, and, it, and it said that there's like a modern day epidemic coming through North America, and it's not COVID or, or monkeypox, it's, it's loneliness, like, we're in this time where people are just lonelier, or at least reporting loneliness at this tremendous level. It was something like 54, 54% of Americans would say that they don't think anyone knows them well. 54% would say that. If that's, if that's true of this room, then everybody like Sandra and to the right is in this camp. Hopefully not the case. But that's a big number. And it's, and it's tremendous, and it's, and it's sad. Even, even worse, it said something like 61% of young adults, an even higher number, 61% of young adults would say that they feel lonely almost all the time almost all the time. And I think it's an incredible thing because if, if I did have to just take a shot in the dark looking at the people here that I know, I would say, I, I don't think it's that high here. I think that the church has afforded a lot of people the kind of community and uh, love and friendship and relationship that would probably make people say that they don't feel as lonely as many of the Americans in this poll. But I know it's not everybody here. I know it's not 100%. And it is a beautiful opportunity, you know, that we are Jesus' followers, but also filled with the Spirit of God, allowed to be God's hands and feet to a, to a country 
that is remarkably lonely and detached and doesn't feel known by others. What a great opportunity that is. We're thinking of opportunities to share the gospel like we're throwing gospel tracks out of passenger windows. What about an opportunity to just know someone in a way that makes them feel really cared for? Um, I was at a conference with Cruz in Minneapolis this past week, just past few days. For whatever reason, I just felt super crummy, like almost every day I was there. It was just really lousy. I, I felt uh, just like really fatigued and kind of tired. And so the last day, I'm, I'm in my hotel room. I woke up. I'm not feeling, not feeling uh, stellar. And, uh, and I text my team lead, and I'm like, I think I need a COVID test. It was like my worst nightmare. It was literally my worst nightmare because I'm a, I'm a thousand miles from home. I don't know anybody in this city. I'm, I'm thinking like I either have to super inconvenience a stranger so that I can, you know, just run the course of COVID while I'm here or I, uh, you know, buy a cheap motel room and then just chill there for a week. And I'm just like, oh man, all these options are just exhausting to me. And so I got my COVID test, came back negative, praise God. And I, uh, I remember telling my team lead just how stressed out I was. I was like, man, Ron, his name's Ron. If you guys are lucky, you'll, I want all of you guys in this room to meet this man at least once. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, Cruz can attest. Um, but I remember telling him, I was like, Ron, I was so stressed out. I was so worried. And he's like, John, when you sent me that text message, I immediately thought, what do we have to do if this test comes positive? Because I want to make sure that you get as much support as you need. And I'm like, gosh, dang it, man. <laughs> it was so kind. But it was just like right then and there, I felt like I had all of this worry and stress and anxiety. And there's just one guy who can see that and just, and just stand there beside me in it. And immediately, I just felt so cared for. It was really tremendous. What strikes me too is that Paul's depiction of this conflict between Philemon and Onesimus paints that he understands them better than his current circumstances. Like, imagine if Paul was like this. Imagine if he said, um, look, Philemon, I need you to restore this guy Onesimus. Look, we all know Onesimus is poor, probably lazy, you know. He's just kind of a bum, but I need you to restore him regardless. Or if on the flip side, he's talking to Onesimus, and he's like, look, I know that your master's a scumbag, I know he's just, he's just a disaster, and he's probably the worst guy in the world. Like, he doesn't generalize. He doesn't see these guys as walking stereotypes of their backgrounds. Like, there is a knowledge of who both of these men were, which afforded him to love them well. And that leads us to our second point, to love our brothers and sisters. To love our brothers and sisters. I love how Paul speaks to and about these two guys. It's so evident just how, where his heart is. I want to go right back to the text. I mean, 
when he when he starts talking to Philemon, he says, "I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints." I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is how he starts it. He knows he's going he's gonna to have a big ask for Philemon. He knows he's going he's gonna to put some pressure on him. But he doesn't start by being like, listen, pal, here's the news. Here's what you got to do. He starts by saying, man, let me just start by saying, I love you, dude. Like, you're such a good guy. You, I, I hear so many incredible, encouraging things about you, and I've been encouraged by you. Like, it's so evident immediately that Paul has a great love for Philemon. And then Onesimus, it says, um, let me see. He refer, like, like, listen to the ways that he, he refers to him. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. He says, I am sending him back to you. And as I send him, I send my very heart. Like, I love that. It's such a tender love that Paul has for both of them. That's why you, you know this is, this is the proper way to, to, to stand between two people in conflict like the worst way you could stand between two people in conflict is to make it clear that you either love one of them or that you love neither of them. But if you love both, then you know that you're really committed to both of their well-being. It's not favoritism. He's not picking one over the other. He's not choosing to empathize with Philemon more because he's closer to a master than a slave. He's not choosing to empathize with Onesimus more than the other. He's saying, look, I just want to say I love you both. Philemon, you've been, you've been A1 since day one, bro. You've been there for me, and I love you for it. Onesimus, this kid's my heart. Like, I love this kid. I, I, would, I would do anything to make sure he's taken care of. You say that about two people, immediately. There's a comfort there. This guy's seeking a mutual well-being for both of these guys. And it's beautiful to see. Because you got to think. The easier path could have just been, all right, well, I really like Philemon, and I really like Onesimus. So I think instead... I'm just going to not send Onesimus back. I'm just not going to deal with this. Look, Philemon's probably fine over there. Onesimus is fine over here. I'm just not going to. But he actually loves them so much, he sends them into a conflict that was necessary to resolve. His love doesn't protect them from a difficult road. His love actually sends them on it and says, I trust God enough that you'll be taken care of. And I'm going to compel you both in the spirit of God to take care of each other. It's a beautiful thing. Here's my third point. To suffer for our brothers and sisters. To suffer for our brothers and sisters. This might be the real meat and potatoes of Philemon that I think we often miss. 
Because if we look at the text here, Paul says something that completely shifts the tone of his appeal to this man. He says this, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I write this with my own hands. I will repay it to say nothing of your even owing me your own self. So he's saying, look, I, I don't know what happened between you guys. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe this dude stole something from you after you left. Maybe that was the source of the controversy, of the conflict. But he's saying, whatever happened between you two, if there's a debt to be paid, I'll pay it. Put it on me. I think that's... I think it's crucial to see that because we can know somebody well and we can love them affectionately, but if there's no skin in the game, that love is really pretty superficial and fairly shallow. Imagine if there were a, a similar conflict where two people weren't talking to each other anymore. Let's say it's Adam and Zach here. These guys, why they're sitting so far apart. Yeah. Adam was going to sit there. He usually does. Adam and Zach are in this conflict. I'm, I'm trying to stand in the gap. I'm trying to say, hey, I love both of you guys, but you need to reconcile. And Adam says, here's the thing. Uh, Zach stole $1,000 from me. At this point, MTC is not cheap, bro. I get it. Um, at this point, now I'm almost putting an unfair burden on Adam to say, I need you to just brush this aside, this debt, this obvious pain, pain point between the two of you. I'm just going to say, you got to push past it and ignore it and figure it out somehow. But imagine if instead I said, look, man, I've got some money. If you're hurting for money because of what Zach did, let me cover it. Like, just let me know how much you need. And I will cover it myself so that you guys can be friends again. Like, that's what Paul is doing here. That is not a shallow love. That is a love where he is willing to sacrifice himself for a, a deeper sense of reconciliation here it kind of forces us to get back into this idea that to follow Jesus, it's not just about the knowing of people. It's not just about the loving of people. But at the end of the day, there has to be some skin in the game for love to be real. There has to be some cost that we're willing to cover out of our own personal sense of comfort. And it may not always look like finances. It may look like time that we don't want to give. It may look like energy that we don't want to expend. But I mean, honestly, if, if, if the only time that we feel compelled to love is when it doesn't cost us anything, it seems more likely that the person being loved is you. And it's not the other person. And it's probably not God either. There's this story in Leviticus 
one of the laws that's given out to the Israelites. It's super cool. It's basically a commandment that when uh, individuals have harvests, because obviously they're very agrarian, they're growing everything, there's no cans of corn you can get from the grocery store. It said, when you go to harvest your goods, don't take everything on the outskirts, but you leave that for the poor and for the foreigner. So even though you grew it, even though you, uh, you know, did all the tilling and the plotting, and I don't, I don't know farm words very well, but even though you put in all the work and the effort to make these plants and these crops grow, it's not yours. In fact, I'm going to remind you that it's not yours by saying this part of it actually has to go to someone else, specifically those who are the most in need. Because that was God reminding the Israelites that here's the spoiler about all this stuff. None of this is yours. Not a single crop that you grow is yours to keep. Because it's my land. And it's my water. And it's my rain and my soil. Like this is, this is part of what it means to like be in this restored humanity back to a communion and fellowship with God is it's recognizing that every good and beautiful thing is a gift from above, everything. So the time that we have and the energy that we expend and absolutely the money in our bank accounts, it's not ours. And if we hoard it from those who are in need, especially those who God has placed in our lives, seems wrong. So those are my three things. Those are the three things that Paul's giving us an example of. To know our brothers and sisters well, to love them well, and to be willing to sacrifice for them. But the question that we have to consider as we come to a close on the book of Philemon, is why? Why bother? Why did Onesimus have to go back to this slave master knowing that he may die at the end of that trip? Why did Philemon have to endure like setting this man free who had sinned against him and probably stolen some stuff too? And why did Paul have to involve himself into something that literally had nothing to do with him? Why? And the answer is because of Jesus who gave them this life. The answer is because they were knowing and loving and sacrificing their well-being because that was the foundation laid for them by Jesus. Like that, that's what's beautiful about this entire like list of verbs that we just jotted to Paul. This isn't Paul. This is the relationship that Jesus has to all of us. Because Jesus knows us deeply, incredibly, incredibly deeply. He knows our hearts. He knows what is valuable and super cool. He knows our ambitions and our desires and our goals. 
He also knows our pitfalls. He knows the worst things about us. He knows our fears. He knows our insecurities. He knows all the things that we're proud of that we want to showcase to the world in our, in our living rooms and in our hallways. And he knows the things that we're desperately trying to hide in our shame. And that doesn't put a stop or a even slow to his love for us. Jesus loves us tremendously, cares for us, seeks out our well-being, keeps the world rotating and spinning, keeps the, the, the gravity contained within our atmosphere, keeps the oxygen filling up our lungs, maintains the universe so that we can be taken care of, and when the time called for it, finished the work that would be required so that we could know and love him, which required his own suffering and sacrifice, his own shed blood and misery and humiliation. And his work is done now. We're all clean. We're all new. Even though... We're not great all the time. That's the great spiritual paradox. We're perfect. We're holy today, even when we're not great because of him, because of Jesus who loved us and knew us and died for us. And so I want to read a quick passage from Matthew 13. Verse 44, it says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. It's funny, I, whenever I read this passage in the past, I always thought the reason it made sense for him to sell everything to buy a rock was because it must have been so valuable, he just sold it and he got 10 times whatever his assets were. And then I read it for the first time and I asked myself, what if he didn't sell it? What if this jewel was so valuable that it was literally worth everything he owned? Like, what would it take? Like, what, what, if, what if something that we could hold in the palm of our hands was so valuable that it spoke into all of our deepest fears, that it drew comfort into us, that it gave us guidance and a way to live our lives, but a comfort for when we failed to meet the expectation, that it gave us an invisible tie that connected us to everyone around us, brothers and sisters, and just fellow image bearers. Like this is it. It's the thing that we sell everything for. So it's gonna cost everything. It's gonna cost the things that we hold really closely. But it's so tremendously worth it. It's beautiful. And we get all of eternity to just tilt that jewel in all different sides and angles to just marvel at all the new, beautiful things it has to show us. 
and all the new and beautiful things we get to experience. And and everything we've laid down, everything we've sacrificed will all be for that new life that we've been given. I want to say, I was going to save this, but I want to say it now. Some of you guys know uh, Sammy and Danny Alcola. Their mom has cancer. It's bad. We don't know how bad yet, but it's not great. Sammy had moved to New York. She just came down to Tucson. Danny's not working right now. They're both just committing full-time to being in the hospital with their mom. We're community. We're family. Mission Church, let's make meals for them, please. Let's show them that we care for them, please. Pray for them. Think kindly of them as they're going through this hard thing. Don't overwhelm them with text messages, please, unless you're already really close, in which case you probably did already. But if you're not, this is not the time to start. I don't think personal family tragedy is the time to really start a connection with someone. But there's still plenty to do. Like, please, we have a meal train set up. We'll have a QR code go up in about 10 minutes. Make meals for this family, please. We're family. We lay our lives down so that we can build up those who are down. It's what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Pray with me, please. Father God, I uh, thank you for uh, giving us the chance to go through Philemon. Um, It's a cool, weird little book. And uh, as much as I thank you for Paul's example of what it looks like to love and care and, uh, and resolve debts and conflict, it's, it's nothing but, it's like the moon. It doesn't have its own light. It's just a reflection of something much greater, which is the love of Jesus. Um, Jesus, before, before Paul ever knew or loved or paid for Philemon or Onesimus, Jesus, you had done that for Paul, and, uh, and you've done that for all of us here. And so please uh, continue to uh, just comfort us in uh, who we are, not who we are apart from you, but we, who we are in you, because that is all we are right now. Um, teach us to meditate on how beautiful it is to be known and loved by you and in a love that was so tremendous that it did not come without sacrifice and without pain. And with that, please compel us to do the same for those around us, to know and to love and to uh, dig in our pocketbooks every now and then or spend that extra 10 minutes on the phone when we really would rather be not doing that. Just uh, help us to do that, Lord. And may it be a reflection of you, and may it bring you glory uh, and happiness. In Jesus' name, amen.